Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I hope that you all are doing well. We can close that door. Again, it's always a great joy to teach and to preach, and great pleasure it is to bring the, the Word of God to each of y'all every Sunday morning or for most Sunday mornings to, to you, my beloved church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, and Lord willing, we are going to finish chapter 4 this morning. Last time we were in Nehemiah, we saw in the beginning of chapter 4 that the building of the wall wasn't as easy as organizing. It wasn't as easy as getting all the materials together. It wasn't easy as dealing with the headache of coordinating with thousands of people and the different things that come along with any kind of building project or construction project. We saw that the greatest difficulty that they faced was the outside opposition and slander that turned into threats, all used to paralyze the work of the building of the walls and the gates around the city of Jerusalem. Before we get started in our passage this morning, I want to go back to verse 14, because I think verse 14, again, is the the theme, in a sense, of this particular chapter. And so we want to have this in our mind as we are considering our text this morning. Let's look at verse 14 in Nehemiah chapter 4. It says, Do not be afraid of them. This is what Nehemiah is saying to them. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Again, I think this verse sums up for us the the whole chapter, for them not to fear the outside opposition, to not let that paralyze them, but to remember the Lord. How do you conquer fear? Look at something greater. Remember the Lord, who is awesome and great. And as Christians, we remember Christ, who endured suffering and derision on our behalf for our salvation. Again, verse 14, summary of, I think, chapter 14, this theme verse, chapter 4, theme verse, and it sets up for us this morning our passage starting in verse 15. So if you would, join me in reading from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In that place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, 
that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right side. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired an inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Here we see at the rest of chapter 4 is more detail of the, the men and women of Israel under the very strong leadership of Nehemiah standing on the wall, standing guard, standing ready, armed with swords and spears, ready to fight for their homes their neighbors, their families, if need be, but also to build the wall at the same time, to protect the walls that they are building. In 1865, none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who at the time was the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, started a magazine called The Sword and the Trowel, which its name is inspired from Nehemiah chapter 4. Today's, today, Founders Ministry has a podcast that is aptly named The Sword and the Trowel. Spurgeon said, We would ply the trowel with untiring hand for the building up of Jerusalem's dilapidated walls and wield the sword with vigor and valor against the enemies of the truth. The name, The Sword and the Trowel, is emblematic of the Christian life and duty, where Christians are to learn to be ready to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, because in the Word of God, we have truth for the defense of our churches, our families, our hearts, and the gospel. And yet also we are called to handle the trowel, to the tool of a mason, to spread the mortar over the wall, laying the bricks day by day, to, to build up, which is emblematic, a symbol of the constant work of the ministry, to build up one another in the gospel, to share the gospel with unbelievers, to take the gospel to the nations, to reading, studying, teaching, and preaching the Word of God, to encourage and edify and discipline and pray all for the building of the kingdom of God, building the dilapidated walls, as Spurgeon said. Certainly quite the appropriate title but also the appropriate theme for us to consider this passage this morning as we also have the sword and the trowel. As Christians, we cannot stand idly by. We cannot be passive in this world. We cannot just say we hold to the truth and do nothing. We cannot just pray and expect the walls to build themselves. We cannot just pray and expect discipleship in our church or in our own lives, and our own hearts to just happen. Nor can we build the walls expecting that everything will be okay living in a very fallen and opposition-filled world. I believe there are three short principles here in this passage as Christians, to wielding the sword and the trowel, to be aware, to be armed, and to be alert. Let's look at verse 15. It says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. I love that. I love that. Had frustrated their plan. We all return to the wall, each to his work. Now, this is good news. Verse 15 is very good news. This is a positive note because what Nehemiah is telling us here in verse 15 is that God had answered their prayer. 
Amen. Right? God had answered their prayer. God had, will answer our prayers. Amen. He wants us to know that. And how God answered their prayer was that Nehemiah had been given somehow the knowledge, the intel about the plans of the opposition. So he knew exactly how to strategize and put the defenses on the wall and in the places where they needed to be built and how they were going to be built with that particular information. I don't know, some kind of Jewish CIA gave them actual, real, right intel. God had answered their prayer. And it says God had frustrated their plan. You ever had your plan frustrated? Well, they had their plan frustrated and they were angry. <laughs> I like that. That's an admission. It's a mission in the sense that, that we all should have eyes to see that God does and act on our behalf for his glory. However, I want us to consider the fact that they knew who their enemies were. Nehemiah clearly says, our enemies. We've seen this only a few times throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, this word, enemies. They were clearly their enemies. People who have stood against them, opposing them, opposing the kingdom, opposing God, opposing the scripture. They knew who their enemies were, what they wanted to do, and then they acted appropriately. The trust in the Lord, they stood guard, and they worked hard. And why? Because they were aware. I'd say that for most of my Christian life has been pretty, pretty cushy, pretty cupcake. It's been pretty, pretty easy. The Christian life today, for the most part, is still pretty cushy, cupcake. If you know Christian history, this cushiness is very rare except for maybe the recent 200 years, especially here for us in the United States. We have enjoyed cushiness and cupcakes and liberty and freedom. Of course, throughout the world, there is still persecution against Christians, most notably in communist countries. And in countries that are an Islamic state. Two very different ideologies. One that's atheistic and humanistic, a totalitarian worldview. And the other, a theistic, yet a very false religious worldview. Both with the intention of world domination. But both need to crush any and outside worldview. However, but for my life, and I think probably for most of yours, has been pretty easy. Sure, I've had people make fun of my faith in Christ. I've been put down and I've been rejected. I've lost a job or two because of my Christian convictions. I've been able to openly share my share the gospel however freely in most places. I've been able to go to a Christian college and, and even seminary. There were times in my life I even wore Christian t-shirts in public and I've never been attacked or arrested. I've preached hundreds of sermons and I haven't been arrested yet. There's still hope, right? If there's one that will do it, it will probably be this one. However, in the words of Bob Dylan, the times, they are a-changing. We can see a shift taking place in our American culture where faithful, hear me, faithful, biblical, those are two very important words, Christianity 
will unfortunately one day no longer be tolerated in the mainstream. I think we've seen that already. I think we can already say that's happening. We feel that marginalization taking place and see what we used to enjoy now being threatened. Religious freedom that once was enjoyed, even unfortunately taken for granted, is being minimalized and taken away. And what we must be aware of is the real enemies of the church and the gospel. And this is where we need to be careful because I am not an idiot prophet. I may be an idiot, but I'm not an idiot prophet. There are idiot prophets out there, even in this town, who call themselves prophets. They're idiots. And I'm not one of those because I'm not going to tell you the future. I'm not telling you the future. I cannot tell you definitively what will happen or how you will be affected by who and when and where and how it's all going to go down. I can only see what's happening and, and see things according to how I can see them. I don't know what's going to happen. However, what we do see and what a lot of you recognize is that there are ideologies and worldviews that directly oppose Christianity. I don't need to say this, but a side note, if someone calls themselves a prophet, then run. But we do not have, but we, excuse me, but we do have the word of God. And God's word reminds us and warns us that there are enemies to the gospel. In 1 John chapter 2, the church is warned concerning the Antichrist. Verse 18 says, look at verse 18 if you can, it'll be on the screen. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. There is an Antichrist that is coming. But now, as John says, there are many Antichrists. Plural. Small a. Now I believe, certainly, these Antichrists can be a person or persons Luther believed it was the Pope. <laughs> Maybe. Have you heard the idiot, that guy there now? Jeez. That dude doesn't know the Bible at all and doesn't care. That's not written in my notes. <laughs> there are certainly persons who can be the Antichrists and persons However, I think more likely and often these antichrists actually represent the wicked and evil systems and ideologies and worldviews that are completely incompatible with the gospel and incompatible with the scripture and the character and nature of God and brothers and sisters, even a complete denial to creation itself. The created order itself. Again, back to 1 John in verse 22, it says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. The Antichrist, these Antichrists, these evil systems and ideologies and worldviews are those that directly do what? deny the Father and the Son, and they are liars, as John says. Now, can you think of any of those today? Let me give you a few. How about the newly invented rights of the sexual revolution of pretty much anything goes? 
Not only are we to deny what we see with our own eyes, but also biology and science. We are to deny the very basic building blocks of creation itself, that God created distinctly men and distinctly biological men and biological women, and there is no such thing as this ridiculous gender fluidity, no matter how you feel. That worldview, that ideology, demands the affirmation of individuals. It demands you affirm it or die. They demand you to affirm their confusion, to deny what the Lord had truly said, it is good. Look how it's packaged today, the Equality Act. And yet it is anything but equal. Do you see how these evil ideologies just turn everything upside down? They package it so pretty, like the beautiful apple that looked tasty. Do what you want. And this is my thing. Do what you want, but do not demand from me to approve of your lifestyle. I do not demand of you to approve of me. Ah, but there is so much more happening, isn't there? How about the widespread debauchery? The complete intentional destruction of the family of a mother and a father in the same home with their children. Drunkenness, drug abuse, evil, fornication, violence, murder, and wickedness that is pervasive throughout the culture and idolized for entertainment. Ah, but there is more going on here. You see, over the past few years, what we have seen, sadly, is a rise in what is called neo-Marxism. And it has made its way virtually into everything. Everything. From politics, sports, education, media, music, books, a rewriting of history, and its invasion into the church. And on and on it goes. The rise of, of socialistic ideas and programs and politicians is a sign of Marxism. Marxism, named after its author, Karl Marx, is the ideology that brought into the world communism. Marx himself was an atheist, but yet he also worshipped Satan. What they don't tell you is that this is what the Soviet Union covered up for years. But now has come to light, and boy, does it make sense. Nothing in history, nothing in the history of the world has killed more people intentionally has tortured more people intentionally, has enslaved more people intentionally, and has put more people in generational poverty than anything else, than communism, Marxism. And it's still being done today. Ask anyone from Venezuela. Ask anyone from Cuba. Ask anyone from the Soviet Union. Ask anyone who loves freedom and they're from China. You see, Marxism demands. It demands that everyone must be the same, that everyone must be equal, not in value, not in essence, but equal in outcome. 
must be equal in outcome. And all society is to be ordered and to, be, uh, to achieve this equality of this utopia. Unless you're one of those very small, special group of people that exist, that exist up the top in lavish wealth. But everyone else is on this same line of poverty. That's how it's always been worked out throughout the world. Unless I forget North Korea. For Marxism to work and how it has ever been put in place, number one, it's never worked, but for them to do it, everything, every institution must be destroyed. Destroy the family. Destroy all objective morality. Destroy education. Destroy personal achievement. Destroy freedom of speech. Destroy the economy that rewards individuals for their labor. Destroy personal property. Destroy history. And more importantly, destroy all religion. You cannot believe in God especially the God of the Bible who gives liberty and who gives freedom and the forgiveness of sin. One of the most diabolical ways that we are now seeing this Marxism manifest itself is through race. I'm hitting all the topics, aren't I? And this grieves me. We hear now of this critical race theory and intersectionality which is designed to pit people against one another. It is designed for you to look at someone else and the first thing you see is not that they're made in the image of God, but they're black or they're white or they're Hispanic. Isn't that what we've been fighting for years? You may need to turn that down, Carson. It's designed to pit people against one another based upon the color of their skin. That is anti-Christ. That is anti-gospel. That destroys humanity. That destroys flourishing. That destroys relationships. And it entitles hatred. Brothers and sisters, we are we are all for justice. And we, are, we should all be for racial reconciliation through the gospel and the forgiveness of sin. Because we know the human heart is sinful and can be sinful toward others based upon the color of someone's skin or race. However, a person is not a racist just because you were born white or black. And I do not care what Ibrahim Kendi says in his book. Don't even look that up. He says that babies are born racist if they're white. They're born that way. No, we're born sinners. And we're going to act sinfully. And this is the kind of thing you need to do to destroy all institutions. To bring distrust in every relationship. In a community, in a culture, in a country. In Marxism, it cannot be harmonized with the scriptures at all. It is an antichrist in our world. Marxism is its own religion. It has its God, and it has its forms of repentance, and it has its church. And for you to be a part, you must bow down and wake up. I say all this on that diatribe because we all must be aware of our enemies, ideologies, and worldviews. Do not direct your opposition, however, 
toward people, but at the ideas by which they have been deceived. Pray for them. Pray, as Nehemiah prayed, that God would frustrate their plans and that God would frustrate their worldviews, as the Lord did to those who were threatening the Jews in Jerusalem. But verse 15 is positive. Be aware of our sovereign God. Remember him, he who will fight for us. Remember him who has overcome the world. We read this this week in our men's study, John chapter 1. And in verses 4 and 5, we read it this, this week, it reminded me, or I thought I need to say it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Our Savior is our victor. So as we are to be aware of our enemies... And to be confident in our sovereign God who works on our behalf, we are also to be armed. Yes, you heard me correctly. Be armed. From verse 16 to verse 18, we see two really important things. As the people prayed and they trust in the sovereignty of God, they trust in that God would fight for them as they remembered But we see very two important things. What does it do? They armed themselves and they continued to build the wall. In verse 18, paints a very vivid picture of of men. You can picture it just strapped up to to the hilt, open carrying their weapons as they are building on the wall. Sweaty, dirty, mortar all over them, but yet with their swords and their spears and their bow and their armor, if they have it. It's a picture of the man with the sword and the trowel. And this is such an important picture because first it shows us that they were believing in the sovereignty of God is not what wasn't giving them an excuse to neglect faithfulness. It was an excuse to them to neglect obedience and the building of the kingdom of God for not taking up the sword and the trowel. They trusted in the Lord, and yet they still acted. They still had their sword, and they still had their trowel in their their hands. And second, this picture shows us the necessity of understanding that we are to be armed as well. That we are to be armed as well. If we are aware, then we need to be armed. And we have been given a sword. Now this is not a call to take up the weapons of this world. The gospel, the church, and the kingdom of God is not advanced through violence like some of those other worldviews do. Now, I do believe as Christians, we can and we should defend ourselves appropriately, as Jesus told his boys to sell their cloaks and to buy a sword. The sword is a tool for personal protection, used to stop and defend uh, defend against the enemy's advances. And this sword, the sword that we have been given, is none other than the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, given to us, given to God's people as a weapon to protect us, spiritual protection. And when it is used correctly, it will defeat the enemy. None other is the great example that we see in our Savior himself, Jesus For when he was in the the wilderness facing the temptations of the, the evil one, what does he do in each account? He rightly wields the scripture to his defense. Do you want to defeat temptation? 
and evil ideologies and worldviews that seek to paralyze us, to bring fear, then know the word of God and wield it as it's meant to be used. And then we are armed not just with the sword or the spear or the bow, but we are also armed with the trowel. Not a weapon, but a, but a tool. A tool to build. And looking at the passage, I think it's pretty clear that the trowel or other building tools that were being used to build the walls were probably used far more than their sword was ever taken out of its sheath. And the same goes for us with our trowel. The trowel is also the Word of God. Because the Word of God is not just a sword of defense, but it is a trowel to be used for the building up of oneself, to the building up of one another, to the building up of the kingdom of God, for the expansion of the kingdom of God by, we, by the proclamation and the sharing and the taking the gospel to the nations. Yes, we have enemies with wicked ideologies and worldviews that have set themselves up as haters of God and Jesus Christ and the scriptures, and they've proved themselves over and over as liars, denying them as antichrists. And with the scriptures, we should wield the sword wisely to defend and overcome when necessary. However, do not forget the power of the gospel to transform the hearts of even those with such worldviews. The gospel transforms even our enemies. For we all, too, were once enemies. That's the kind of work that the Lord does. Share the gospel with your Marxist neighbor. <laughs> Share the gospel with your unbelieving parents. Share the gospel with the socialists. Share the gospel with those who you know hate the gospel. That's the kind of work the Lord does. Here's something I read in my study about these tools. It says both tools are needed to build anything of genuine spiritual value, to touch hearts and mend lives, enable us to boldly stand that which is, for, which is good and pure and righteous, and to effectively serve and love with compassion. Christians must be familiar with and well-practiced with the sword in the trowel, learning and growing in our wisdom concerning how and when to wield them in the most effective and skillful manner. You see, we are to wield the tools given by our Lord, to be armed with the sword and the trowel, not only to defend the gospel, but to build one another up. And we must learn to be wise and discerning and diligent to use them. Brothers and sisters, be armed. But also, not only be aware or be armed, but lastly, be alert. Be ready. Be on guard. Look again at verse 19. It says, And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. They're armed, they're building, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're spread thin over a mile of wall, building for weeks on end and under the threat of violence and death. And Nehemiah tells them that if you hear the trumpet, be ready. Be alert. Be on guard. Drop your trowel, pull out your sword, and bring your spear and be ready for the fights. 
be alert. Keep your eyes and your ears ready. But more importantly for them and for us, as he says, our God will fight for us. That is more powerful than the ways that I can wield the sword. Jesus Christ has fought for us. The Lord hasn't left us. He hasn't walked away from us when it's hard, but he has shown us through our Savior that he will fight for us. He hasn't abandoned us to wicked ideologies. He has not quit. He hasn't quit in building his kingdom or his church. That rallying cry is a cry to be alert and to be ready and not quit as the Lord hasn't. Verse 21, Nehemiah goes on. He says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from, from the break of dawn until the stars came out, from morning till evening. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. Well, why? That they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of my guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. He's telling us to be alert, to be ready to be in the fight. Brothers and sisters, you may know this from movies or history or, or books, but when soldiers are on the battlefield, when they were in Bastogne in World War II or the, the Marines in Okinawa, do you think they took off their gun belts and took off their boots unless they needed to dry their feet? Do you think that they changed their clothes? No, they stayed ready in their foxholes, never knowing when the enemy may come. Brothers and sisters, this is a posture of war. This is a posture of death con too. Be ready. Keep your clothes on. Keep your sword on. Keep your armor on. Be alert. You're staying in the city not just to sleep together, but to be together so that when one hears the trumpet, all hear the trumpets. And everyone was on guard, including Nehemiah himself. To stay on guard, to be alert, to be ready. And why? Because the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How are we to be ready? Well, the Bible helps us with that. We are to be ready for good works. Paul speaks to the, to the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he's saying, and he says in verse 18, they are to do good, be rich in good works. Rich in their good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Be rich in good works. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, it says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. To be ready for the good work. To use the trowel at every chance that we get, to build one another up, to encourage one another. Second, we are to be ready for defense. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You notice why the scripture tells us that the word of God is a sword and not a hammer. Because it's precise. Because it's truthful. Because it cuts so that it could heal and not smash and destroy. We wield the word of God wisely as a sword. Prepared, ready to make a defense for anyone. A defense. A defense. Ready to go. And lastly, we are to be ready to preach the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We are to be ready to preach the gospel in season and out. Ready to wield the sword and the trowel for cutting and for healing, for demo and for rebuilding. Be alert and ready to faithfully use the tools and the weapons that the Lord has given us. We have seen our call this morning as Christians and that we no longer have the luxury to live passive in this world. We are to have a wartime posture, ready to go, standing on the wall, standing on the breaches together. The reality is, is that no Christian at any time had the luxury to live life passively. I hope you understand the tone and the language used today. It's not a call to violence or to incite hatred for people, but to hate the sin in which births these evils. The Bible uses these kinds of language, this kinds of language, so we should also use this kind of language and be unapologetic about it. But as God's elect, we still have to live in this world. So with the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other, build a way. Build a way. Stand together, trust the Lord, stand guard together, and work hard. But I know, or but know this, excuse me, but you should know this, that with the sword and the trowel in your hands, and as you are building away and you become tired and you become sweaty and you become dirty and you become broken and you become discouraged and you might even become fearful, please remember this that one day God's people will hear a trumpet. That will not be a call to arms or war or even a call to death. It won't even be a rallying cry to continue building, but it will be a sound of peace in the ears of those who are in Christ. Because at the trumpet, at that trumpet, our Savior will return and he will gather all of us to himself. And then we will know, and then we will know that it all has been worth it. And that the burdens we bear have all been truly light. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to finish with this, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a great mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning, this calling, this warning, Lord, to be alert and ready and to be armed with the, the tools and the weapons that you have given us at our disposal. And yet, Lord, we know that we need to wield them wisely and discernibly, not flaunting them, not pulling them out to show off or to be flippant with, Lord, but wisely. And so would you help us as we grow, all of us grow in these things, aware of our enemies, armed with the sword and the trowel, and alert for every good work, for the defense of the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, yet let our ears be ready to hear that trumpet that one day will call us to yourself. But until then, let us work diligently, knowing that all of our labor is not in vain, to the glory of Christ and for our joy. We pray these things in his name. Amen.